Hello, my friends, and welcome to the Robcast. This episode is called Reading Part 3, because we're going to do a little bit more reading. Uh, before we do that, tickets are now up for the first three cities in England this summer on the UK leg of the Introduction to Joy Tour, and I love touring in the UK. So Bristol, London, and Manchester, I am coming your way. Also, Fresno and Santa Barbara coming your way in May, Chattanooga, Knoxville, and Louisville coming your way in June. All that in the near future. And speaking of new future, my next Largo show is May 14th. And if you haven't been to a Largo show, they're just so much fun. That place is magic. My new show is about art, science, sex, and death, to name a few of the things that are in this new show I'm doing. And that's May 14th. Tickets are at largo-la.com. I know. So those are things happening uh, in the near futures. But now what's happening in this episode is I had this idea a couple weeks ago because I have all these books that I've written in this shelf in the storage room of the back house. And I was like, I haven't read any of those since I wrote them. Some of them like 15 years ago. I wonder what those books are. I wonder if, what it would be like to read them. <laughs> And then I thought, I should just read random sections of my books and record it and do like running commentary on it. So uh, it took two episodes to get through five books, and now I'm going to get through my other five books in this episode. So we may be here a while. <laughs> uh, because I have a nice little stack here, and it's been such an interesting exercise. I... Uh, I probably at some point we'll probably do a whole episode on what I learned going back and listening to my my former self to that other Rob Bell <laughs> to a previous version of me. Um, so first off, I have this book, What We Talk About When We Talk About God. It came out in 2013, which means I well I remember this book. It took a year and a half. I sat there every morning. Honestly, this book was not any fun to write. It was just pure undiluted slog. And I remember I had all these ideas on three by five cards. At one point I laid them all out on the floor um, and then started counting them and lost track at 600 three by five cards. I had all these ideas that I was trying to put into a coherent narrative and it was so frustrating. Literally with this book, what we talk about, we talk about God. There are weeks when I would write all week and at the end on Friday, just delete what I'd written. <laughs> I know, just maddening. Um, so, but now when I read it, I'm like, ooh, some of this writing, this really cooks along here and there. So here we go. Here's what we talk about. We talk about God. This is a chapter called Open, page 24. Welcome to the Red Shift. The universe, it turns out, is expanding. Restaurant chains expand. Waistbands expand. So do balloons and those little foam animal toys that come in pill-shaped capsules. But universes, or more precisely, the universe, it's expanding. Now, the edge of the universe is roughly 90 billion trillion miles away, roughly being the word you use when your estimate could be off by a few million miles. The visible universe is a million, 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 million miles across, and all of the galaxies in the universe are moving away from all of the other galaxies in the universe at the same time. This is called galactic dispersal, and it may explain why some children have a hard time sitting still. <laughs> oh, my word. The, seriously, when you like try to write about science and then make it funny. That's just, that's like a, let's just be honest, that's like a weird literary genre. The solar system that we live in, which fills less than a trillionth of available space, is moving at 558,000 miles per hour. It's part of the Milky Way galaxy, and it takes our solar system between 200 and 250 million years to orbit the Milky Way once. The Milky Way contains a number of smaller galaxies, including the Fornax Dwarf, the Canis Major, the Ursa Minor, the Draco, the Leo One, and the not-to-be-forgotten Leo Two, the Sculptor, and the Sextans. It's part of a group of 54 galaxies, creatively called the Local Group, which is a member of an even larger group called the Virgo Supercluster, which has a number of hit singles in the early 80s. <laughs> oh, my word. I am making myself laugh. And... 
The Virgo supercluster happens to be traveling at 666,000 miles an hour. So be careful out there and look both ways before you cross the supernova. My word, it's just one joke after another. Back to our original question, expanding? Around 100 years ago, several astronomers, among them Edwin Humble, he of telescope fame, and Vesto Slipher, he of awesome name fame, observed distant galaxies giving off red light. Red is the color galaxies emit when they're moving away from you, blue when they're moving toward you, hence the term redshift. Fast forward to 1964 to two physicists working for the Bell Telephone Company, Arno Penzias and Robert Wilson. These men were unable to locate the source of strange radio waves they were continually picking up with their highly sensitive equipment. As they searched for the source of these waves, cleaned the bird droppings, which Penzias called white dielectric material, off their instruments, and shared their findings with other scientists, they realized they were picking up background radiation from a massive explosion. An explosion, it's commonly believed, that happened a number of years ago, 13.7 billion to be more exact. Apparently, before everything was anything, there was a point called a singularity, and then there was a bang involving inconceivably high temperatures loaded with enough energy and potential and possibility to eventually create what you and I know to be life, the universe, and everything in it. The background radiation from this explosion, by the way, is still around in small amounts as the static on your television, and you thought it was your cable company. <laughs> oh, my word. And then, wait. Now, when we get into sizes and distances and speeds this big and far and galactic and massive, things don't function in ways we're familiar with. For example, gravity. Jump off the roof of your house, drop a plate on the floor in the kitchen, launch a paper airplane, and you see gravity at work pulling things toward our planet in fairly consistent and predictable ways. But in other places in the universe, gravity isn't so reliable. There are celestial bodies called neutron stars that have such strong gravity at work within them that they collapse in on themselves. These stars can weigh more than 200 billion tons, more than all of the continents on Earth put together, and fit in a teaspoon. And then there's all that we don't know. A staggering 96% of the universe is made up of black holes, dark matter, and dark energy. These mysterious, hard-to-see, and even harder-to-understand phenomena are a major engine of life in the universe, leaving us with a 4% of the universe that is actually knowable. By the way, today, headline New York Times, uh, scientists are showing us the first pictures of a supermassive black hole. So for the first time in human history, we have actual photographs of black holes. Uh, back to the book, which leads us to a corner of this 96% unknowable universe to the outer edge of an average galaxy to a planet called Earth, our home. Earth weighs about 6 billion trillion tons, is moving around the sun at roughly 66,000 miles an hour, and is doing this while rotating at the equator at a little over 1,000 miles an hour. So when you feel like your head is spinning, it is. Paris is, after all, going 600 miles an hour. Earth's surface is made up of about 10 big plates and 20 smaller ones that never stop slipping and sliding, like Greenland, which moves half an inch a year. The general estimate is that this current configuration of continents that we know to be Africa, Asia, Europe, etc., has been like this about a tenth of 1% of history. The world, as we know it, is a relatively new arrangement. Time, and then I skip ahead here. Time is not consistent. It bends and warps and curves. It speeds up and slows down. It shifts and changes. Time is relative. It's consistency, a persistent illusion. It's an expanding, shifting, spinning, turning, rotating, slipping and sliding universe we're living in. There is no universal up. There is no ultimate down. There is no objective, stationary, unmoving place of rest where you can observe all that ceaseless movement. Sitting still, after all, is no different than maintaining a uniform, approximate, constant state of motion. There is no absolute viewpoint. There are only views from a point. Bendy, curvy, relative, the past, present, and future are illusions as space-time warps and distorts in a stunning variety of ways, leading us to another matter, matter. Oh yeah, now see what's interesting about this because uh, the book is called What We Talk About We Talk About God, is you can see this whole section here on quantum physics and the curvature of space-time. What I'm trying to do here is show the dynamic nature of the universe. And you can also see my thinking here, because this is uh, 
uh, eight, nine years ago when these ideas were forming a decade ago is you can see me waking up to the idea of the divine as a verb uh, more than a noun. You can see me, uh, you can see the rigidity of some being somewhere else isn't working for me anymore. And so I'm looking to science. Yeah, see, I go back and I can see all this growth here. I was reading so much science and seeing how dynamic and ever-changing the universe is. Everything is in motion. And so a lot of those ways of thinking, especially the ones I was trained in, like systematic theology, which is very fixed and very static, uh, I literally, in my training, in my early 20s, took classes where it was like, God is Roman numeral one, point A, point B, point C, Roman numeral two, point A, point B, sub point one, sub sub point, small a, small b, uh, which essentially creates like a static view of ultimate reality. So I can feel in these pages, uh, it's it's like the it's like driving with a top down. You can feel the wind, you can feel the movement, you can feel the energy as I'm trying to expose and show people this universe with galaxies all moving away from each other. Welcome to the redshift. By the way, speaking of the personal nature of writing, I had been welcomed into the redshift. This is what happened to me. Oh. The whole thing is this vibrant, pulsing, dynamic dance. And so if we're going to talk about God, that's the nature of ultimate reality. Uh, that's the nature of the divine, as opposed to this fixed, static Roman numeral one, Roman numeral two, Roman numeral three. Oh, so interesting. Now, uh, let's go ahead. Here we are. This is a section called With. Once again, there aren't chapters. There are just these words and movements. Page 110. Uh, what our experiences of God do at the most primal level of consciousness is jolt us into the affirmation that whatever this is, it matters. This person, place, event, gesture, attitude, action, piece of art, parcel of land, heart, word, moment, it matters. Yeah. Let me keep going here. It's like there's a scale from 1 to 10, and you always would have sworn that someone or something mattered to you with a 10, but then you almost or you actually do lose her or him or it or them, and suddenly your heart is filled with a 17 or a 39 or a 4,291 kind of mattering. I like that section. That's weird. New capacities, ones you didn't know were possible before, open up inside of you. Sometimes you realize that something that didn't seem to matter to you actually does matter. Other times, something that mattered to you suddenly finds a way to matter even more to you but every time something within you expands. The ancient Hebrews had a word for this awareness of the importance of things. They called it kavod. Kavod originally was a business term referring to the heaviness of something, which was crucial in weights and measures and the maintaining of fairness in transactions. Over time, the word began to take on a more figurative meaning, referring to the importance and significance of something. Kavod is what happens when you're exchanging the usual how are you's with a person you see regularly. Only on this particular day, she doesn't respond with her normal fine and you, but instead says not good. And suddenly everything changes. Now you ask her why she isn't good and she tells you and you quickly find yourself in the midst of her pain and you feel what she's feeling and you hurt like she hurts and the conversation is no longer brief and shallow like it has been for years because now it weighs something. It is significant. It matters. She matters. You matter. The fact that she decided to be honest with you matters. The thing that is happening between you matters. That's kavod. Kavod is what happens when you're trying to talk someone out of suicide and you keep insisting that this life matters. You're trying to find a better ways to explain it and you're begging and pleading and persuading and doing your best to convince this person not to go through with it. And you keep coming back to the conviction you have that life matters, even though that sounds so simple and duh and obvious in the moment. It's what happens when you meet up with someone who has just shaved his head and you make a joke about it. And he tells you it's because a friend of his is going through chemo and he shaved his head in a sign of solidarity. And suddenly you're standing, staring at that shiny head in a whole new way. That's kavod. We live in a light 
world, one that bombards us from thousands of directions with advertisements and escape in every conceivable form and television shows about people doing mindless things and elevators that play mind-numbing versions of songs we used to like before we heard them a million times. This noise, in all its visual and psychic forms, can numb us, making this day feel like it's without weight because it's just like all the others as they run together. But Kavod, Kavod is something else. Kavod is serious. Not in an overbearing, stilted kind of way, but in a sacred, holy kind of way. The word is often used in the scriptures to refer to God's glory, that which happens when the monotony is pierced, the boredom hijacked, the despair overpowered by your sense that something else is going on just below the surface, something that's bigger and wider and deeper and more powerful than anything you could begin to imagine, something that reminds you of your smallness, frailty, and impermanence. It's that gut-level awareness you're seized, awareness you're seized by that tells you, pay attention, because this matters. When we're talking about God, we're talking about every single one of those moments, whether they're earth-shatteringly loud and large or infinitesimally small and whisper-like, mere slivers you inadvertently stumble upon, moments when you are convinced, even if you've been burned and let down and betrayed countless times, that cynicism does not have the last word, that life is not random or meaningless or empty, but that what you do and how you feel and what you say and where you go and what you make of this life you've been given matters. Oh, what we talk about when we talk about God. I like that kavod section. That's got some kavod to it. Yeah, you know, it's really interesting to me when an ancient word, and you know, I'm always quoting these ancient Greek and Hebrew words, it's interesting when a word names something, uh, and you're like, oh, yeah, I've often, the writing that's moved me the most has been when somebody gave me language for something I'd been experiencing, and somebody gives you, they name it, and you go, oh, that to me has always been the great gift of the writers and communicators who have so moved me. So I see that in these pages. I'm trying to name these elements of the human experience that are actually very hard to name, writing about the divine, I mean, putting God in the title, it's so easy for it to get abstract and squishy. I can see myself there. I can feel myself in those pages trying to ground it all. Otherwise, it's just, it can be, you know, big sort of esoteric ideas without any legs, hands and feet on them. So that was uh, what we talk about. We talk about God, my friends. Now let's talk about, let's go, we're going way back, friends. This is a deep cut. My second book is called Sex God. <laughs> oh, yeah. Sex God. This book goes way back. This was written, this came out in February of 2007. So I wrote it in 2006. And actually in 2006, Kristen and I and the boys who would have been really young at that time, they would have been eight and six, we uh, spent a month in South Africa. And I remember first thing in the mornings, the boys had schoolwork they were doing, and I would sit and work on this book in these different places we were staying throughout South Africa. Um, now, uh, Sex God, and the subtitle is Exploring the Endless Connections Between Sexuality and Spirituality. I will now read the beginning of chapter one. Uh, the chapter one of Sex God, this chapter is called God Wears Lipstick, as read by the author. <laughs> in 1945, a group of British soldiers liberated a German concentration camp called Bergen-Belsen. One of them, Lieutenant Colonel Merson Willett Gonin DSO, wrote in his diary about what they encountered. I can give no adequate description of the horror camp in which my men and myself were to spend the next month of our lives. It was just a barren wilderness as bare as a chicken run. Corpses lay everywhere, some in huge piles. Sometimes they lay singly or in pairs where they had fallen. It took a little time to get used to seeing men, women, and children collapse as you walked by them. One knew that 500 a day were dying and that 500 a day were going on dying for weeks before anything we could do would have the slightest effect. It was, however, 
Not easy to watch a child choking to death from diphtheria when you knew a tracheotomy and nursing would save it. One saw women drowning in their own vomit because they were too weak to turn over, men eating worms as they clutched a half loaf of bread purely because they had to eat worms to live and now could scarcely tell the difference. Piles of corpses, naked and obscene, with a woman too weak to stand, propping herself against them as she cooked the food we had given her over an open fire. Men and women crouching down just anywhere in the open, relieving themselves. A dysentery tank in which the remains of a child floated. This account is shocking, horrible, and tragic. But why? Because people shouldn't eat worms? Because people shouldn't make piles of corpses? We answer yes to these questions because no one should be forced to live in conditions such as those at Bergen-Belsen. And yet we intuitively understand that the wrong being done to these prisoners, these people, was much more significant than just the physical conditions forced upon them. A concentration camp is designed to strip people of their humanity. It's anti-human. And in the scriptures, anything that's anti-human is anti-God. Genesis begins with God creating the world and then creating people in God's own image. The Hebrew word for image there is selam, and it has a specific cultural meaning. The stories of Genesis originated in ancient Near Eastern culture, where a king was said to rule in the image of a particular god. The famous King Tut is an Egyptian example of this. His full name was Tutankhamun, which is translated the living image of the god Amon. The king was seen as the embodiment of a particular god on earth. If you wanted to see what that god was like, you looked at that god's king. The writers of Genesis make it clear that in all of creation, there is something different about humans. They aren't God, and they aren't going to become God, but in some distinct, intentional way, something of God has been placed in them. We reflect what God is like and who God is. A divine spark resides in every single human being. Everybody, everywhere, bearers of the divine image. Picture a group of high school boys standing by their lockers when a girl walks by. One of the boys asks, how do you rate that? They then take turns assigning numerical values to the various parts of her anatomy, discussing in great detail how they evaluate her physical attributes. This scenario happens all the time, all over the world, every day. It's a pastime for some. There are television shows and websites and endless discussions all devoted to deciding who's hot, who's not. It's an industry, a form of entertainment, and a culture. And it's everywhere. The problem is that that is actually a she, a person, a woman, with a name, a history, with feelings. It seems harmless until you're that girl, and then it hurts. It's degrading. It's violating. It does something to a person's soul. That's the opener. Wow, I like what I was just putting it out there. I love it. Um, then I talk about uh, the hells on earth when we fail to um, respect the humanity of others. Then I talk about this whole section on the new humanity. By the way, yeah, there's this phrase in the New Testament, uh, new humanity, that I just love. And then... Uh, we go into, my word, and I talk about this family that I know. Oh, yeah, here we go. The first chapter ends this way, which takes us back. Ah, uh, so chapter one begins and ends with this uh, concentration camp and these British soldiers taking it over and rescuing these people, which takes us back to something that happened during Colonel Gonin's stay at Bergen-Belsen concentration camp. And then this is uh, Colonel Gonin's words. It was shortly after the British Red Cross arrived, though it may have no connection, that a very large quantity of lipstick arrived. This was not at all what we wanted. We were screaming for hundreds of thousands of other things, and I don't know who asked for lipstick. I wish so much that I could discover who did it. It was the action of genius, sheer, unadulterated brilliance. I believe nothing did more for these internees than the lipstick. Women lay in bed with no sheets and no nighty, but with scarlet red lips. You saw them wandering about with nothing but a blanket over their shoulders, but with scarlet red lips. I saw a woman dead on the postmortem table and clutched in her hand was a piece of lipstick. At last, someone had done something to make them individuals again. They were someone, no longer merely the number tattooed on the arm, 
at last they could take an interest in their appearance. That lipstick started to give them back their humanity. And then I finished the chapter by saying, because sometimes the difference between heaven and hell may be a bit of lipstick. Oh, man, bringing it, Rob Bell. Oh, yeah, and then the last chapter of this book is called Johnny and June, and it's all about Johnny and June Cash and this idea of corresponding strengths for each other and a man and woman uh, partners together going the distance. Okay, shall we keep going? Um, Let's do, you know what, let's do one from, this book is called Que es la Biblia? Um, also known as What is the Bible? This one is, uh, this one just came out a couple years ago, two years ago. And What is the Bible? You know how, you, you want to know how, how the, What is the Bible started? I thought to myself, could I write a book with just stuff that's in my head? If I just sat down and started typing, <laughs> could I just sit and type up a book? Wouldn't that be strange? I wonder if there's a book already in my head. So, uh, and then I thought, what if I put the book on Tumblr? And so I just started doing these riffs on Bible stories, giving background and context and doing some midrash, like some sort of running commentary. And then each day we'd put another thing I'd written on Tumblr and I wrote a uh, hundred thousand words on Tumblr. And I remember people would put in the mess in the comment sections, like Tumblr isn't where you put long books, whoever you are, Rob Bell. <laughs> There's always somebody defending the orthodoxy of something. Um, and, uh, then I, there was an opportunity to make a book out of those hundred thousand words on Tumblr. And so I took out 30,000 words roughly and the book, ended up somewhere in the 60,000 range. So, uh, that's the key, by the way, is you have to always make way more stuff. Yeah. You got to make way more. You want a good 10 song album. You got to write 50 songs. So it has to be way more. And then, you know, you're doing well when you start editing out um, pieces. And then uh, the book came out, and, it, and um, I'm trying to think which... Oh, here we go. This is, I guess this would be chapter four, and it's called Who Paid Jesus's Bills? Uh, and then it starts with a quote from Luke 8. After this, Jesus traveled about from one town and village to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. The twelve were with him, and also some women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had come out. Joanna, the wife of Chusa, the manager of Herod's household. Susanna, and many others. These women were helping to support them out of their own means. Luke chapter 8. Then I start in. There's so much here. Where do we start? First, Jesus rolled deep. The literal Greek word here is posse. I couldn't resist. Oh, man, what's with the Rob Bell jokes? As Jesus went from town to town, he was accompanied by a large group of people, both men and women. The disciples were referred to as the 12. Get it? There were 12 tribes of Israel, and Jesus is calling Israel back to her roots and mission to be a tribe that blesses the world. So he starts by surrounding himself with 12, and then a group of women. These women helped pay Jesus' bills. When the check for the meal came to the table for this large group, it was the women who took care of it. Parentheses. For the record, do you see how crazy it is when religions and faith communities and churches don't allow women to do certain things like lead or teach or preach or be elders or priests? This movement started with women not only being fully empowered participants, but also bankrolling the work. How insane is it when a religious institution has a list of what women can and can't do? End of parentheses. These women had fascinating stories, like Mary Magdalene, who had previously been possessed by seven demons, parentheses, someone counted. Can you imagine her perspective on things? You can feel Luke's agenda by including a line like that, can't you? He wants you to see that Jesus was about what he's doing, the kind of people he attracted, the kind of people his message is for. And then there's Joanna. Ah, yes, Joanna. Who is Joanna again? Oh, yes, the wife of Husa. And who is Husa? the manager of Herod's household. Now that is a bomb dropped right there in the middle of the paragraph. Why? A little background. Herod the Great was the king of Israel who died around the year four. 
He was a towering figure who dominated the socio-political landscape for 40 years, building massive palaces and theaters and fortresses and killing lots of people, including his wife and some of his sons. He's the one who ordered the execution of those children when Jesus was born. When he died, Rome decided to divide his kingdom among his sons. Philip got the east, Herod Antipas got Galilee, and Archelaus got Judea, which included Jerusalem. Archelaus quickly made a mess of things and was ultimately replaced by a Roman governor named Pilate. Yes, that Pilate. Philip faded quickly and Herod Antipas was given Galilee where Jesus was born and raised. So when Jesus came on the scene, Herod Antipas was the ruler of Galilee, and Herod Antipas was a very, very rich man. He owned lots of land and had palaces and guards and servants and a massive household, the biggest in the country. And who managed this king's household? Husa. So Husa would have been responsible for a massive amount of wealth, which would have brought him a massive amount of wealth. He shares this wealth with his wife, who is traveling with an itinerant rabbi, paying the bills. Let's pause for a moment and let that sink in. Joanna would have been the elite. Her husband is the president's chief of staff. That's lavish banquets that go on for hours with singers and dancers. That's various homes scattered around the country. That's the best clothes, the best art, the best furniture. That's a life she apparently doesn't find that interesting because she's sharing a room at the Motel 6 in Cana with Mary, who used to have seven demons. She's sitting around the dinner table with small-town fishermen who are probably in their late teens, early 20s. She's meeting lepers. She's hearing Jesus give sermons to thousands of people who have come to hear him because they're hoping for free food because they're hungry. Now, one more detail. Notice this from Luke 13. At this time, some Pharisees came to Jesus and said to him, leave this place and go somewhere else. Herod wants to kill you. Herod wants to kill Jesus. Of course he does. Herod rules a kingdom, and it's absolutely crucial for him that his kingdom remain the only kingdom. But Jesus is going from village to village, announcing the arrival of another kingdom, the kingdom of God, a kingdom that isn't built around the rich oppressing the poor and the powerful using their military might to keep the weak in submission. It's a kingdom built on compassion and nonviolence and love and solidarity with those who suffer. It's a totally different kind of kingdom. For Herod, any other kingdom than his kingdom is a threat, and so he wants Jesus dead. How does Jesus respond to the Pharisees telling him that the most powerful man in the nation is trying to kill him? Wait, before I tell you what Jesus says, let me give you a bit of background. Then I go into this background about lines and foxes, and uh, let me skip ahead here. Now, let's connect all the dots. Herod wants to kill Jesus because Jesus is proclaiming a kingdom other than Herod's, and that makes Jesus a political threat. But Jesus is able to travel around announcing this subversive message of a different kingdom than Herod's because there's a group of women who travel with Jesus and pay his bills, including a woman named Joanna who has lots of money because her husband is the household manager who gets paid by Herod. Herod, in other words, ends up indirectly funding the very resistance movement he's trying to stamp out. Fascinating, isn't it? That's just a few words in a paragraph in the eighth chapter of one of the gospel accounts of Jesus' life. <laughs> that is one of my favorite stories. That's also, for me, I realize now, sometimes what we do, we do because of an injustice. There's some wrong that we've seen that's just burning within us, and we have to make it right. I think at some level, this book, this What is the Bible book, for me, was just hearing people say lame things about the Bible um, and just realizing then you clearly haven't read it because there's so many layers. Even the political subversion in this one story here, um, these writers were very, very, very sophisticated. So uh, even now, that story, even the way I wrote it, uh, I can feel the energy of, I got to show you this. I got to show you this because... There's an injustice that needs to be righted here. And um, obviously the Gospel of Luke, female empowerment is one of the dominant themes of the Gospel. It's like Luke tells so many stories where he's clearly saying, look at what Jesus is doing here. This is so breaking with tradition. This is not how people did things at this time. His inclusion, inclusion is, the I would argue, the, one of the dominant, if not the dominant thing of, theme of the Gospel of Luke. He keeps talking about this Jesus who keeps announcing a kingdom of God, you could say a realm of divine, that's for everybody. Yeah. 
Uh, let's do another one, shall we? Um, oh, you know what? Let's do... The, here's a book. This is an interesting one. This book came out in 2011. Just quietly came out and went right straight to the bookshelves called Love Wins, a book about heaven, hell, and the fate of every person who ever lived. By the way, you know that... <laughs> this is what was fascinating about this book. It The book is so over the top. Like, even the subtitle, a book about heaven, hell, and the fate of every person who ever lived... You know that I'm like winking right there. Like that's supposed to be funny. The fact that people didn't get how much of this book, there's even a chapter called Does God Get What God Wants? <laughs> the fact that people like took here is the new there. That's one of the chapters. Here is the new there. Oh, you know I love titles. And then this one chapter, the first chapter is called What About the Flat Tire? The fact that people didn't see this, uh, <laughs> it's like comedy. Um, actually, that what was it? What uh, the comedian Bill Burr uh, read? Told somebody, a friend of mine, recently that he read Love Wins, and he was like, "Yeah, those are bits. <laughs> those are like a comedian's bits right there. He's doing like stand-up in book form." <laughs> oh my word! The fact that people like took this like, um, yeah, I'm like smiling at you on the cover when I say that it's about the fate of every person who ever lived. Who knows this? Who would write about this like they actually know? Come on. Um, Chapter seven is called, let's go to the very end here. The good news, does this only have seven chapters? What is my problem with like, you know, these short, I know why the books are so short. I make the book short on purpose because I want people to read them. People people said like the book is only 198 pages. Yeah, because I actually want people to read it. I, I there's, a, there's a tactile experience. I always ask for them to copy set it, uh, is that the right word? with a large font. I want people to pick up my books and immediately be like, oh, I could read that. And I also want them, because tactile, we're tactile creatures, um, especially the hard copies of the books. Um, I want people to pick up a book and immediately with their fingers, uh, with their kinesthetic sense, be like, I could finish this. And I also want people, when I'm writing, I always, always ask, does this section here make you want to turn the page? Does this make you want to turn the page? Does this make you want to turn the page? Like there's a certain energy. And when I'm writing, I'll read through everything I've written. And the second I lose it for just a half, a split second, I stop. Okay, what was it there? What was it? It's like there's a, there's like a crackle, like a pulsing something just below the surface of words. You can imbue words with your energies. Uh, and you can open yourself up so that under other energies beyond yours, so that spirit can flow through what you're doing. So I'm always looking for how, how can these words have a bit of hum to them so that it's almost like you're caught up in something and I got to see where this goes. It's also because, um, well, nine of these 10 books aren't narratives. They're built around ideas. That gets a little tricky because if it's a story, well, what happens next? But my work, uh, at least phase one of my work, was about these ideas, and it's harder to craft narrative out of ideas, a beginning, middle, and end, um, a trajectory of sorts. Where is this going? What happens next? So uh, lots and lots of time and energy is spent going over and over and over the book, making sure all these books that whatever's happening on the page, something within you is like, where is this headed? Where is this going? How is this going to be resolved? Now, uh, let's go to the end of this book, Love Wins. Oh, yeah, there's a thing here on a story Jesus tells that I really, really, I love. Uh, he, Jesus tells a story about this, these two sons, and the one wanders away, spends all of his inheritance, then he comes home, uh, and he's coming home f filled with shame, and he decides, he rehearses this speech to tell his dad, I'm no longer ready to be son, but could I at least work for you? But instead, the father embraces him. It's called the parable of the prodigal son. It probably should be called the uh, forgiving father. Uh, I retell this story, page 165, as read by the author. I retell the story of Jesus because of the number of stories being told in this one story. That's a sentence right there, my word. I retell the story of Jesus's because of the number of stories being told in this one story. <laughs> 
The younger brother tells a story. It is his version of his story, and as he heads home in shame after squandering his father's money, he rehearses the speech he'll give his father. He is convinced he's no longer worthy to be called his father's son. That's the story he's telling. That's the one he's believing. It's stunning then when he gets home and his father demands that the best robe be put on him and a ring placed on his finger and sandals on his feet. Robes and rings and sandals are signs of being a son. Although he's decided he can't be a son anymore, his father tells a different story, one about return and reconciliation and redemption, one about his being a son again. Or actually, that's not even... One about him being a son the whole time is probably more accurate. The younger son has to decide whose version of his story he's going to trust. Oh, yeah, this is the mojo right here. I didn't write that. I'm just saying that to you right now. Uh, The younger son has to decide whose version of his story he's going to trust, his or his father's. The one in which he is no longer worthy to be called a son or one in which he's a robe, ring, and sandal-wearing son who was dead but is alive again, who was lost but has now been found. There are two versions of his story, his and his father's. He has to choose which one he will live in, which one he will believe, which one he will trust. Same, it turns out, for the older brother. He, too, has his version of his story. He tells his father, All these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, he can't even say his brother's name, who has squandered your property with prostitutes come home, you kill the fattened calf for him. So much in so few words. One senses he's been saving it up for years and now out it comes with venom. First, in his version of events, he's been slaving for his father for years. That's how he describes life in his father's house, slaving. That directly contradicts the few details we've been given about the father, who appears to be anything but a slave driver. Second, he says his father has never even given given him a goat. A goat doesn't have much meat on it, so even in conjuring up an image of celebration, it's meager, lean, lame. The kind of party he envisions just isn't that impressive. What he reveals here is what he really thinks about his father. He thinks he's cheap. Third, he claims that his father has dealt with his brother according to a totally different set of standards. He thinks his father is unfair. He thinks he's been wronged, shorted, shafted, and he's furious about it. All with the party in full swing in the background. The father isn't rattled or provoked. He simply responds, my son, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. By the way, my favorite line in any literature ever is that line. You are always with me, and everything I have is yours. By the way, I thought about calling uh, a book I wrote a while ago, You Are Always With Me and Everything I Have is Yours, but just do a quick search of that one, and you get the cheesiest love songs. You are always with me and everything I have is yours. And then he tells them that they have to celebrate. You are always with me and everything I have is yours. In one sentence, the father manages to tell an entirely different story about the older brother. The older brother hasn't been a slave. He's had it all the whole time. There's been no need to work, obey orders, or slave away to earn what he's had the whole time. The father hasn't been cheap with him. He could have had whatever he wanted whenever he wanted it. Everything the father owns has always been his, which includes, of course, fattened calves. All he had to do was receive. See, what the father does here is he redefines fairness. It's not that his father hasn't been fair with him. It's that his father never set out to be fair in the first place. Grace and generosity aren't fair. That's their very essence. Oh, I love that. High five the universe for that one. Grace, I'm going to read it again. I enjoyed it so much. Grace and generosity aren't fair. That's their very essence. The father sees the young brother's, younger brother's return as one more, in ca- one more occasion to practice unfairness. The younger son doesn't deserve a party. That's the point of the party. That's how things work in the father's world. Profound unfairness. Oh, seriously, my Robcast peoples. That right there will just change everything. Think about how many human interactions fared it, the obsession with fairness. Now, we're not, we're not dealing here with justice or when somebody has legitimately been wronged. We're not dealing with financial transactions, but these postures of the heart, the spirit with which we approach things. 
back to the profound unfairness, people get what they don't deserve. Parties are thrown for younger brothers who squander their inheritance. After all, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. What the father does is retell the older brother's story, just as he did with the younger brother. The question, then, is the same question that confronted the younger brother. Will he trust his version of his story or his father's version of his story? Who will he trust? What will he believe? The difference between the two stories is, after all, the difference between heaven and hell. By the way, I notice here, like, uh, heaven and hell, and in many ways, you can think of them as states of consciousness. Um, I like what I'm doing here. This is interesting. I wonder what I do next. (laughs) I'm reading myself wondering what I'm going to say next. Now, most images and understandings people have of heaven and hell are conceived of in terms of separation. Heaven is up there. Hell is down there. Two different places far apart from each other. One over there, the other over there. This makes what Jesus does in the story about the man with two sons particularly compelling. Jesus puts the older brother right there at the party but refusing to trust the father's version of his story, refusing to join in the celebration. Hell is being at the party. That's what makes it so hellish. It's not an image of separation, but one of integration. In this story, heaven and hell are within each other, intertwined, interwoven, bumping up against each other. If the older brother were off alone in a distant field, sulking and whining about how he's been a slave all these years and never even had a goat to party with his friends with, he would be alone in his hell. But in the story Jesus tells, he's at the party with the music in the background and the celebration going on right in front of him. Hell is our refusal to trust God's retelling of our story. We all have our own version of events, who we are, who we aren't, what we've done, what that means for our future, our worth, value, significance, the things we believe about ourselves that we cling to despite the pain and agony they're causing us. We believe, let me skip down here, we believe all sorts of things about ourselves. What the gospel, what the good news does, because this chapter is called The Good News is Better Than That, what the good news does is confront our version of our story with a divine version of our story. Oh, that seriously. And I'll stop right there. Cliffhanger. Oh, I love that. Yes. You can see what I'm doing there. I'm trying to rescue people, especially people who have this sort of religious imprinting on their psyches of these places you go and you die. Like, what, what is that? Uh, I'm trying to place heaven and hell as states of consciousness right now, as realities we create by how we see things, by the stories that we attach to things. Yeah, the, the ways in which people torture themselves by clinging to a story that they simply don't need to cling to. You, you can tell a different story. And, oh my word, the good news is better than that. Oh, man, this is very interesting. What a fascinating thing to go back and see all the things I was doing, uh, all the things I was trying to communicate. I also, by the way, uh, there are all these places where I go, ooh, uh, back off there. Ooh, change that paragraph just a little. Oh, pause and explain that a little more. My, uh, you know, the more you do something, the craft, the trade, the art form, the more you work with something, you build up like this musculature, but it's funny in reading my books, there's so many places where I'm like, yeah, I'd probably say that differently now. Good job there, young me. You were really going for it there. I literally find myself patting my earlier self on the back. Like, you were really throwing yourself into it there, Robbie Bell. Um, but uh, 2019, Rob Bell wouldn't do it that way. I probably, uh, <laughs> a lot of it, I wouldn't even be talking about that. But that's the beauty, is you just keep going. Now, Those of you keeping score at home, in these three episodes, we have covered nine books. But I know some of you are like, wait, 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 there's a 10th one, and you're right. I saved the 10th book for last because my 10th book was called The Zimzum of Love, A New Way of Understanding Marriage, and it was written with Kristen Bell who has just arrived in the back house. Yeah, actually, she's been sitting here, but she is joining me for this episode because she was the one, remember when I said, like, hey, I'm thinking about reading my old books and then just recording it 
was like, that's a pretty good idea. So she has a microphone, Kristen Bell. Hi. Surprise. Hello. Guest to wrap up three weeks of reading. <laughs> and I've loved sitting here listening to the live version. Really? I've loved it. I'm, I, I think I laughed. I cried. <laughs> <laughs> no way. Um, and I was really moved by a number of those stories. It's really, this is an interesting exercise. Isn't it fascinating? Yes. Because it's such a different me, a different us. Mm, but the, no, but in the, the sense of like, well, I'm sorry. Yes, Keep going. I see what you're saying, but I was really, I was really moved by the things that you read. And um, like, is it Joanna? Mm-hmm. That story, I've heard it before, but like, you know how sometimes you hear a story and you hear a different part of it? Yes. I heard a different part of that story that I hadn't heard before, even though I've heard it many times. Yeah. Yeah, that's um, sacred text and great literature have this just very mysterious power to like, you read it and then you read it again and then you read it again. You're like, I swear I've read this before. And yet something completely different happened inside of me or to me. Right. Because I, I love the part where she had everything. She was like, yeah, you'd assume so. She went to the best parties and had uh, access to probably yeah. anyone she wanted. And yet yeah, yeah, yeah. it wasn't, what she wanted there was yeah. something about the jesus movement she was like no that's where that's where the juice is and this is when i first discovered midrash that like in in the ancient rabbinic tradition it was assumed that you were filling in all these details to a story like your honor and respect for an ancient text was measured by how much story you added to it you know what I mean? As opposed to this sort of like um, stand at a distance and put it under a glass case and just sort of hallow it at all costs. But it was, oh, you would riff forever on Joanna. Right. And I think you can tell when you're on the right track. Like that feels oh, right. Oh, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Because you have these, a tiny, you have a few details from the story. This is a wandering itinerant rabbi who has a death sentence on his head. And then Luke tells you that she's the household manager of Kuza, of uh, the household manager's wife of Herod, which, I mean, the economy of words and what it says in those few, you know what I mean? Like, it's just a few words, but it paints such a massive picture, like story. You can just run with it right. forever. Yeah, you could go on. Isn't that fascinating? Yeah. Okay, so you and I wrote this book in... We sat side by side. Every morning we started at 9 a.m. I remember this. For a year and a half, you and I sat side by side and wrote this book. We did. We decided that if we were going to get it done, we had to like make sure we sat down for three or Absolutely. four hours every day. Every day. And I remember you and I had a list of rules that we made up for ourselves. Like, um, We had one that was odd because it was like from the get-go, we were just like, this is not a cheesy marriage. This is a book for everybody who would never buy a marriage book. Because we don't read marriage books. Right. And I remember we also had, it has to be deeply conceptual. Um, and then have enough sort of flesh and blood practical writing in it. It was like we were trying to do this impossible thing. I remember we talked a lot, uh, like in TV and film, they talk about tone meetings. You know, like getting the tone right mm -hmm. from episode to episode. We talked, I mean, we spent months just talking about getting the tone. How do you do this? Right, we were quite particular about the tone. Yeah. It's almost like we started We started with this idea of Zimzum and these core ideas. Normally, you just start with all of the positive you want to do. But I remember this one had these few ideas we wanted to articulate really cleanly and almost like Zen-like, and then we just had these long lists of things we didn't want, which isn't really how I generally approach things or you, but I just right. remember that. I remember that being a huge thing. So um, I was thinking I would just read a bit. Great. Let's, let's you, keep you, this party are, are you going. But the section here has you in it. Oh. So I'm gonna, I don't want to read your parts. Oh, yeah. I forgot we wrote it that way. <laughs> <laughs> Do you see? So this book we wrote in 2013. Is that right? Yeah, because right. it came out in 2014. 
2013. But uh, did you forget that? that well, you're, that there's in stuff? the beginning when we were first <laughs> writing it, we didn't write it that way. And then we yeah. realized that it wasn't going to make sense unless yeah. we broke it into this is your voice and this is my voice and this is And our then the our voice. Right. So for those of you keeping track at home, there's three voices in the book. There's the two of us together, our, first person plural. Then there's R, me, and K, you. Um, so I, I, page 48, I just randomly have opened, when I'm doing these readings, I just kind of randomly open it and just turn a couple pages and find something and go, okay, we'll go with that. So I was going to start the bottom of 48, the space between you. Okay. Is that okay with you? Okay, let's see what happens. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, ladies and gentlemen, here we go. As read by the authors. The space between you is dynamic. Because the whole book basically is about the space between two people and what happens in that space. And then, never mind. Anyway, the space between you is dynamic because life is always changing. It's also dan- dynamic because you're married to a human being. <laughs> Such- <laughs> I think you're going to go on to explain what you mean there. <laughs> <laughs> you're married to a human being. And human beings are endlessly complex and surprising. By the way, this isn't the R section. This R is in Rob. Oh, right, right. This is an hour. This is our. Would you like to read the next paragraph? No, go ahead. Okay. I just wanted to be clear there. Out of 7 billion people on the planet, you have chosen this one person to live your life with day in and day out, year after year. You know this person. You've spent a lot of time with them. You're familiar with what they like and with what annoys them. Now, this is me. You learn that Kristen will most likely order the vegetable curry. And that Rob is happiest if he's in the ocean. And Kristen does not like surprise birthday parties. And Rob is unable to wait to open a present. He will literally unwrap a present that's for him under the Christmas tree just to know what it is and then wrap it back up without telling anyone. Then how did you know? Oh, intuition. That sort of thing. You build up these familiarities over the years. Patterns, habits, quirks, preferences, taste. You finish tastes. You finish each other's sentences. You know what they're thinking from across the room. You show up at breakfast both wearing a gray t-shirt with green pants and brown sandals. You feel like they're your other half. But then there are those moments when they surprise you. This is from Rob. You're at a dinner party, and she starts telling a story you've never heard her tell, and suddenly you find yourself listening from across the table thinking, who is this mysterious red-headed woman who tells these interesting stories? Like the time Rob told me he's going to hike across Iceland? Or the time Kristen announced that she was going to Harry Potter World. I didn't see that coming. You've spent thousands of hours with this person, and yet you can be strolling through a furniture store, and suddenly they flop down on a chair and say, I love this chair, and you say, you do? There are times you get them a gift and you know it's perfect, they're going to love it, and then there are other times you have no idea how they'll react. People aren't static, they're dynamic, endlessly complex, and capable of tremendous surprise and change. We have a friend whose father is a doctor and worked all the time and wasn't around much while she was growing up, but then at the age of 70, he experienced a profound spiritual rebirth that radically changed him, altering everything about his life from how he spends his time to his connection with his family. This surprised everyone, especially his wife, who was thrilled at 70 years old. There is an endless mystery to this human being you are married to, a mystery in which you never stop learning more about this person you know more than anyone else. This person has a body, a tangible physicality that you can see and admire and embrace. It's an exotic combination of dust and blood and skin that can be weighed and measured. They also have a soul, a spirit, a personality, a vast intangible essence that extends way beyond whether or not they're in the room. Sometimes when people have just met or they've gone out a few times, they'll tell their friends, we're just getting to know each other. But you never stop getting to know each other. People who've been married for 50 years regularly turn to each other and say, so, what'd you think? To be married is to be joined at the deepest levels of your being with someone who is both known and unknown, predictable and surprising. Oh, that's very interesting. Yeah, that was like a big deal to us in writing this, is trying to convey this sense of... Oftentimes people have questions about their relationship, but then you just explore a little bit, and and there are these assumptions about what it means to be human that are shaping... Well, it kind of reminds me of what you read about the expanding universe, that 
there's something about a person that's endlessly expanding. Yes. And so in marriage, it's not like you figure somebody out and then you've got it all figured out. It's actually what makes it interesting, which makes it, um, makes it fun is you're, you're married to someone who you're still discovering as they're discovering themselves and growing and changing and expanding. Yeah. So what's interesting is sometimes the, the things are stuck because of these deeply held convictions about what it even means to be human. And if you go there into those places, then who knows might then happen between the two of you. Um, I skipped ahead. Because of the dynamic nature of the space and the complexity of the two of you, page 53, first paragraph, you never stop figuring it out. This is not a cliche. This is a truth about the nature of the space between you. It's always changing. So you're always adjusting, adapting, discussing, and navigating it together. You may have the illusion that you can figure it out for good, get the right things in place, master the best methods and techniques, and then you'll be all set. You will have arrived. But as soon as you think you have it all figured out, something will change, and you'll need to adjust and adapt and figure it out again. When you get married, you're starting an end, a conversation that never ends, a conversation that includes all the everyday details about bringing in the recycling bin and stopping by the vet to get those pills, and did you call the electrician? And at a much deeper level, it's a conversation in which you never stop figuring it out. You're going to try things that don't work. You're going to say yes to things that you later regret. You're going to spend money on something and then later realize it wasn't the best decision. You're going to have lots of conversations in which you say to each other, let's not do that again. You're both unique. Your marriage is unique. And learning what works for you will require lots and lots of talking. That's fascinating to me how many people in those Q&As on tour are... Their questions are are all a question of yeah you're gonna have to you're figuring that out. Yeah, I do think there's a a, a common thing that people believe that if if only I could get to this place, then I would have it all figured out. Yes. Or if only this or that were different, then right. then we would be happy. Then it would be smooth and everything would be figured out. I think there's also a common misconception that other people have it figured out. Right. Like we're the only ones that seem to like be <laughs> floundering. Um, and, and I think that's what we wanted to get at in this section is, is it's the nature of being human. It's the nature of two people creating some, something together, the space between them. Um, you're going to be endlessly figuring it out. And that's, if you can see it as this is part of the fun. Absolutely. Which goes back to the story that you're telling the, the father and the two sons, like the story that you attach to this stuff, um, the thing that you're going through, oh, this is the worst season ever, or, oh, this season has thrown us all sorts of interesting challenges, Or you even can, that shift. Or you can lighten up about just that list of things you just read about the things that didn't work. Yeah. Can you like lighten up and say, we're human, we're figuring this out? Um, or you and I will be like, it's just money. Well, It's just money. You've always been great about <laughs> um, whatever about having that perspective, <laughs> about being light about things that don't work. I think maybe it's part of um, being a writer, being someone who creates things. You you, you have a um, intuitive knowing that that's just how the creative process. Oh works. yeah, right, right, right. Is sometimes you have to make a big mess before you make the thing you're making. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I always go back to. You always tell me, it's just, this is just part of it. This is just part this of it. This is all part of it. I should actually do a whole episode called This Is All... I actually had, a, had an episode I was working on called This Is All Part of It. Just to try and help people normalize, yeah, this is all part of it. Like what? Because if you flip it around, what was your assumption? Or you, you talked to like some couple. What was your assumption? That the two of you would join your lives together and then just know how to do all of this? Right effortlessly through every stage and season? Like, well, what was your operating assumption? Um, because if you just begin with, of course there's going to be a bunch of, of course we're going to assemble the thing and there's still going to be some pieces on the floor. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, of course. Well, what, what else did you think? It's so amazing how when you flip the assumptions, then you get freed at so many levels to actually enjoy it. Yes, yes. And I think sometimes... 
you can then lighten up about maybe the the mess that you feel like you're in. If you can lighten up a little bit, that's when you can see maybe a way forward. Yeah. How are we going to do this differently? How are we going to recreate? That's so true. Oh, by the way, page 119, the epilogue. There are times in marriage for analyzing, figure out how to understand each other better, how to help the other thrive, how to be more intentional about your own health. But your marriage is also a mystery. And mysteries are less about analyzing and more about enjoying. That's a good line. I bet you came up with that one. That's a good line. <laughs> uh, and then uh, look at this. So there's a bit of Zimzum of Love with surprise guest Kristen Bell. Thank you for coming on the mic for a few minutes. I got through, I just read five books, 10 books and three episodes. Well done. Thank you for affirming the idea. I loved it. It's such an interesting thing to do, isn't it? Look back on our earlier selves. <laughs> well, my friends, do you have any, any final words? I don't. I just thank you for that. I really enjoyed it. Did you really? I really did. Just trying to impress Re you. Reading time with Rob Bell. The one goal of As my read life. By the if author. I can impress you, if I can make you laugh. It's read by the author. Well, friends, this has been another episode of the Robcast. And this has been three parts called Reading. And I'm so glad we did this. And now, grace and peace to all of you.